again, everybody. This is Joel, and you're listening to episode 84 of the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile. Today's episode is part two of the 369 Live Enneagram panel starring Enneagram 3's Laura Addis and John Singletary, Enneagram 6's Craig Nash and Heather Mustaine, and Enneagram 9's Jill Harrington and Brett Gibson. This episode is a continuation of part one, which is episode 83, so if you haven't heard that yet, go back and give that a listen first, or Tarantino this and do it backwards. That works as well. What are your thoughts on group work? Enneagram 6's What is an Inner Committee? Why should you update your resume? Thoughts on efficiency? And what age did your kids start making their own lunch? If this two-part series got you interested in joining the Enneagram cohort, please visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com or suzannestabile.com. You'll find links there for the application and information for the 2021 LTM Enneagram cohort with Suzanne Stabile. As always, thank y'all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and good luck on the journey. So Laura's got something to say and then I'm going to talk to Jill and Heather for a minute. John and I were just talking uh, during the break, uh, I, I have agreeing with him kind of in, do you relate to being feeling repressed or feeling dominant first? Uh, stance work has been really important to me as well. Um, and I really readily um, recognize my feeling repression. And I was just saying to him, I wonder if one of the reasons that stance work has been so important to me is because there's something to do with that. Like, it, it gives me work to do. And um, this is very anecdotal, but as I've talked to people, it feels to me that for many aggressive women, stance work has been really important for them as well. Um, and so I wonder if there's some kind of, particularly women in the South or women in the church in the South, um, that doing that stance work, bringing up the feelings, kind of takes some of the rough, rough edges off uh, that society doesn't super love in us. So that's what I have to say now. Okay, well, the thing I want to talk to the two of you about in terms of um, doing is that um, when, I'm going to start with you, Jill, and when you were an apprentice, which means she was studying with me for three years, you did a lot of very brave things during those three years. You made a plan. You knew those things were going to, more than two or three. We're going to cause conflict. You did it. You shared with people that you were going to do it, and then you did it, and then you shared what happened when you did it, people meaning the people in your apprentice group. Heather, you were um, in your cohort very clear when you talked about whatever you felt like was yours to talk about. You were very strong around this is what should be done, this is how that should be, this is how it works for me, this is how it works for other people, I don't understand why it works for them that way, you know, right. So the thing that I'm trying to get to with both of you, because you're non-aggressive numbers, is was there in the reality of doing Enneagram work with other people who knew the Enneagram and who were doing the same work, strength for you to bring up your repressed center, right, to bring up your dominant and repressed center, and know that 
this is the right thing to do because I've thought it through in the context of other people being a part of that. And was that true for you because you, you were, I thought, very courageous during that time when you were with that group of people? And you don't need to say yes if the answer is no, but I want to hear your answer and then I might want to say something else about that. Yeah, I would say yes and um, maybe bad to say that I don't remember even what those brave things were that, at that point in time. There's been a lot that's happened in the last six, seven, eight years. Um, but I would say yes, in that time and just in other times in my life, I, in doing things that feel brave and difficult, if I am surrounded by people who support me and where I feel safe, like feeling safe and supported is important um, in in moving forward in a meaningful way, doing something that is meaningful for me, not just for other people. I would agree. Yes, I would say that I, um, I felt more sure of myself uh, in, in that sense. I think it's because um, I felt like I was needed to be the expert or like I, I'm the only one that can share what it's what my experience as being a six is like into that space. So, um, you know, there's a lot of spaces where people are kind of vying for like, well, I'm the best or I'm the smartest or I'm the, you know, and I don't, I just really don't do that. And so I think in, in the space of, of the cohort, it was, I, I get to share what this is like for me and nobody gets to tell me that it's not right. And so I think that the, our center's here in Dallas, if you don't know about it, it's the MICA Center, and we have a tagline that is a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. And I'm just going to make a pitch for you to be in an Enneagram group, and if you can't find one to join, then start one, even if you're doing repressed, or even if you haven't thought it through completely, or even if you're not sure it's an efficient use of your time that wait for other people to figure out stuff in a group meeting because the Enneagram is very helpful and it, it's a thin line between helpful and challenging and an excuse for behavior. And what happens in a group of people is you don't get to use your Enneagram number as an excuse. And then you are courageous and you know what you think and you know that feelings are part of everything and you're going to have to allow them and I think you can get away with a lot if you don't have a group. I just think you need a group. So can I, can I add one other thing? I think that another big part of that was being known by those people. Um, it's so easy for me to just go through life, you know, like I've talked about, just doing things and not being known in what I'm doing. Um, but stopping and being a part of that group, there's no getting out of being known with that group and, you know, being a part, and, you know, of a group for three years where you're intimately connected. So it was, it was about being known and therefore them feeling safe and supported. I just don't want people to walk away after hearing you guys and in, fall into that illusion of, okay, well, I got this. Now I'm going to go home and do this. Like I'm... I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do this. And if you don't have somebody that you're accountable to in a way, then pretty quick you're going to do it the same way you've always done it because that's what we all do. So give that some thought. 
All right, so we're, we're back to, now we're to sixes, about which you identify with more, being dominant or repressed. Yeah, so your specific question was, when we wake up in the morning, <laughs> and that was very, um, that's, that matters uh, for me, because I think at that point, I am um, dominant, because I haven't had time to build up all of the, the residue of unproductive thinking. Um, like, right when I wake up, I have something to do, that I think about, and it's, it's, it's my, my routine, my schedule, and then later in the day is, um, well, probably early in the afternoon, once I've cut myself off of coffee, is when the uh, thinking repression comes, and I just kind of, you know, uh, my mind is racing with the unimportant things that have no end. So are y'all dialing into the fact that being thinking repressed doesn't mean you're not thinking, it means that you're not productively thinking you're still thinking 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 it's just not productive or you're doing 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 it's just not productive so I heard that a commercial for a local air conditioning business recently and their tagline was uh, talking about other AC companies when they come they're like activity doesn't mean accomplishment so if they're just back there taking around that doesn't mean they're getting the stuff done I mean, I think I spend the majority of my day in thinking repressed areas. Um, I, but I'm fully aware most of the time that I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking in repressed ways. So that's, that's been the help of the Enneagram, is that I, I know and I, I'm aware of when I am unproductively thinking or when I'm looking to my inner committees to help solve this problem for me, um, but I would say I spend most of my time in repressed thinking. And the Niners? Um, I think, I think certainly, uh, is this one? Yeah. I think certainly the uh, repressed center is uh, similar, I think, to what John was saying. Um, where I've found the most uh, work that is there for me to do in terms of kind of spiritual formation and is in that, uh, in stance work, uh, figuring out for the past couple of years, especially for me, what does it look like for me to bring up doing, actually to, um, uh, to walk past a sink full of dishes and not just think, um, man, someone should do those dishes, <laughs> but actually to stop and say, oh yeah, actually I'm a grown up in the house. I could, I could do the dishes. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, so I, the that's that's definitely the focus, and it's amazing how you can I can go through a day doing all day. I mean, from the time I wake up, getting kids up, making breakfast, making lunch, taking them to school, going to work myself, and picking them up on the way home, and all of the activity in a day, um, how little uh, of the work that I'm doing is uh, how important the work is that I'm doing and vital, and yet how unaware of myself in the midst of it all that I am. I mean, I think that was very well said. I agree. I mean, I think I, in the morning when I wake up, roll out of bed and just start doing, and it's not thoughtful. It's not, I would say it may be kind of robotic in a way. It's so routine, just doing, you know, going through the motions in the morning and getting to work and just starting and just kind of, like I said, doing what comes across um, my desk or in front of me. So I'm, that's what I am most aware of. It's just that routine 
doing If there's doing. a big change of routine, does that really th- throw off Absolutely. effective doing? So yes. Like, yes. I don't like it when things are, th- that my, when my routine is thrown off by something or someone. Um, that's when a little bit of anger starts to come up. Summer, summertime as a parent when there's nothing to do, the kids have nothing to do, and I don't have my routine of getting up and getting them to school. Oh, I don't know what to do with my, it's, it's one of the most frustrating times of the year for me. So during school, during the school year, doing dominant, during summer, doing repressed. (laughs) And spring break. That's, listen to that reframing for you so you get to go home happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited about this question, and y'all feel free to talk amongst yourselves about it. You yeah. get to have your committee before committee. you answer this. So we, at the Mike Center, when we do uh, the small groups or the curriculum, we break up into groups within our group. So we'll have, all right, tonight we're going to meet in triads, or you're going to meet in your stance, or sometimes both. So this question's different than the question that was just asked. But you walk into the room and you see you can either go, so for the threes, you can either go sit with the twos and the fours, that's the heart triad, or you can go sit with the sevens and the eights. Where are you going? Sevens and the eights, every time. It, it depends on how healthy I am. Depends on what? How healthy I am. If, it's not funny. If, <laughs> it's not funny, but it is a three answer. <laughs> I mean, I know how important, I love the twos and the fours in my life because they help me connect with my feelings. So I oftentimes do look for them. It's not easy. I don't default to that. But I, I really am in a place where that is important to me. And I see too much of myself in other aggressive numbers, to be honest. The longer I do this, the more I see of myself that troubles me. And so it's a different kind of energy. I mean, I'm kind of drawn to their energy still. So if that's what you mean, I'm drawn to the aggressive energy, yes. But if I walk in a room and I want something meaningful out of it, it's, the aggressive numbers are much harder for me. I don't, if I'm just walking in a room, who do you want to sit with? I don't want to have the feeling conversations that a two and four table would be having. I want to have the like, what are you doing? What'd you do today? What are you doing next week? What are you excited about? Let's talk about, let's get going and do some things. And that's at the seven and eight table. That's where John would sit. You're so put off by just the idea of going to the other table. (laughs) All right. So sixes, y'all are going to go sit with the fives and the sevens, or you're going to go be the ones and the twos. I would go with the ones and the twos. Unless Suzanne was at the table, I would certainly go with the fives and sevens. Why? Okay, I think I know why. Is I can hide better with ones and twos than I can with fives and sevens. So meaning, um, so ones, twos, and sixes, we all verbally process. Um, But ones and twos... Really verbal, like I can, I can kind of retract <laughs> myself from that, and um, but you know, one, like my husband's a one, and 
you know, he, he likes to process a lot, and twos like to process a lot, and I can just kind of sit there and just kind of hide. I've learned that sometimes that's what's, what they're asking of us to do, is just sit there yeah, while they're right. processing. So I think for me, um, the fact that a seven is an aggressive number, for me that would be the place I could hide. Um, all the energy would be with that person. Um, okay, we're gonna, wait a minute, we're yeah. gonna do a thing. So um, I spent years teaching that um, you could be phobic, counterphobic, or both. I've changed that now. And I have decided that it's all I have learned. I haven't decided. I've learned that it's all a continuum, and this is phobic at zero, and counterphobic is at 10. And my new way of talking about that is to ask where you put yourself, if you're a six, on the continuum, phobic to counterphobic, zero to 10. So um, I'm going to let both of you say the answer to that, and then let's relook at what you're saying. So on our podcast, I said an eight or nine, but then we had the cohort ne the next week, and we talked through it, and I got to think through it, and I brought it down a little bit to six or seven. I would say four or five. So there's the, there's the difference in, for you two, in part, in whether or not you choose to go with the dependent numbers or the aggressive numbers. I mean, the whatever you go to. So, right, because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stance or triad. And the reason for that, I think, has to do with your relationship to authority. So it's fascinating, Craig, that you said, unless Suzanne's at the table, right, because if authority's at the table, you're going to that table, right, as well you should. <laughs> Who here would not have said the exact same thing that I said? So I, I, I think you have to always keep in mind with sixes that they're not, they're not static on that either. Like you, the next time we talk, you could be a higher number and you could be a lower number because there's just so much movement in that. Does that have a lot to do with who you would choose to sit with when you walk in the room, where you are on the continuum? I just find myself around sevens and fives a lot and I have difficulty with those numbers. So and I'm the I, opposite. I have difficulty with ones and twos. All right, so the nines, you're either going to go sit with eights and ones, that triad, or you can go with fours and fives in the stance. I'm definitely going to go with eights and ones because that's where the energy is. I, I would probably first see if there's a table by itself and go there. <laughs> I would prefer that. <laughs> right, it wasn't an option. I'm cheating. But I, I mean, this feels also very nine. I also feel like I, like either table could be great. I mean, <laughs> does that feel very nine? Right. I mean, I'm picturing some, you know, some fours and fives in my life that when I kind of am feeling more withdrawn myself, that would be really nice to be able to just relax with. And then other times, eights and ones who are just, yeah, I mean, some of my favorite people are... I'm thinking of an eight and a one in my mind right now that I would love to sit with them. Yeah, it just depends where I am, I think, in the moment. And at and this my, point, you say, haven't chosen. And, so. right. and, my, and my answer does depend on, that was if I didn't know anybody at those tables. Now, if I knew the fours and fives, I would go to that table because it's more natural to have those conversations. Otherwise, it's 
kind of awkward sitting with all withdrawing numbers at a table. That's why I like the ones and the eights where there's energy there. Are you trying to avoid conflict with fours and fives that you know in the world that you think are going to have their feelings hurt? I'm trying to avoid being affected, having to draw out conversation. (laughs) It's effort that's required there. It's a, well, it's just a very interesting thing. So now let's just run through all of you real quick and talk about how you feel about being at a table doing group work ever with anybody. Vulnerable group work or just like project-based? You know, Carolyn, my friend Carolyn, my oldest friend Carolyn, who's a five, used to say to me years ago, like 25 years ago in LTM, she would say, you know, if you're going to make people be in small groups, I think you should send out a postcard ahead of time and let them know. Because she would say, because I'm not coming. So my question now is an overarching question of just tell me where you are in terms of being in a group. Like you have to go be in a group because that's what everybody in the room's doing, group. Well, just because you've been told to and because everybody in the room is doing it doesn't mean that you have to go. Like, that's my first answer. Like, I'm not going if I don't want to go. Like, I'll go to the bathroom, I'll take a fake phone call, I'll go make more coffee. Most of Laura's comments in cohort when she tells us things to do is do it or don't do it, whatever. No, do whatever you want. So uh, I would say the only time so in the So in the cohort, Laura says, I'd like for you to do this or don't do it, do whatever you want. And I say something like, Jesus wants you to do this, right? I think I only participate in group work because I know the Enneagram now. It's, it is hard for me to remember before I knew the Enneagram, right, and how I process the world then. It's so formative in how I see the world now, partially because I believe it's true, partially because it's my job to talk about and do the Enneagram all the time. Um, <clears throat> but but when I try to think back to like how I would have engaged in groups, I would have been leading the group, whether or not that I was supposed to, and whether or not other people were aware of that. And that's not like authentic participation in a group. That's manipulation or leadership that's not mine to do, or sometimes it was what I was supposed to be doing. So I think, um, I mean, I'm aware I made fun of you for saying this earlier, but only when I'm in a really healthy space can I engage in a group and say, I'm going to give what I have to give, and I'm going to receive what there is to receive, and this is going to be a mutual participation. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of intentionality, and my guess is if I was being really honest, even when I think I'm doing that, I'm probably only there half of the time that I'm participating in the group, or a quarter of the time, or a third of the time, something like that. Will you talk about mutuality in place? I... um have been trying for a long time to find an inroad to safely talk about some work that was done by Richard Foster, who's a Quaker, probably 35 years ago. And that is that he talks about provision in place and personality, and he says that we all have the right to all three. But in talking about place, he says that there is no such thing as place unless it's mutually understood. So you can't join a group that won't receive you. You can't define your place in an organization unless the organization mutually agrees that that's the place 
that they see you in as well. So there's a, there's a mutuality that goes in dealing with place anytime you're with one or two or five or nine or ever how many people. And mutuality requires vulnerability. Everybody up here does not want to be vulnerable for a different reason. And it's very interesting because the threes don't want to be vulnerable in terms of feeling, and the sixes don't want to be vulnerable in terms of thinking, and the nines don't want to be vulnerable in terms of doing. And there is a risk in wanting to be part of a group because you only are part if it's mutually understood that you get to be. So at a place like the Micah Center, you, you're part of the group. If we do group work, you're part of the group. How you find your way into that with the vulnerability that you care, carry with you is in part how you set the table for other people to be part of the group. So Laura and John could be part of a group, lead the whole time, get everything done that's on the list, wrap it up, and say, why don't we walk outside till every other group is finished? And so part of what I teach aggressive numbers is you can't lead a group that you haven't joined. So when you start to try to take over in a group that you haven't joined on a level of mutuality and vulnerability, then that, that puts aggressive numbers in a bad light usually. And they have an advantage over the other two aggressive numbers because they're feeling dominant and feeling repressed. And sevens and eights are just feeling repressed. No feeling dominant in that. What were we talking about? Homecoming mums. Homecoming mums. <laughs> that's, you're still on that lane. Earlier you said that's a Texas thing, so that's not... Other... No, it's only Texas. What? It is weird. That is brand new information. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. You can take it from Craig because he's thought about it a lot. <laughs> did and, you Google it? Did and a you good Google, Google search on that, yeah. Um, were you about to say something? Well, I was going to remind you what we were talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> you asked... Um, I've already forgotten now that I, <laughs> oh, well, groups, working in groups, vulnerable groups, and I would say, and in some ways you um, kind of answered this for me, and um, it would be interesting in cohorts to, to do like data assessment, like at the end of each, <laughs> like we, so this is turning into like a, a, a commercial for your cohorts, so, um, but after the first one, which numbers like, were like, yeah, I really participated and I really... And then after the second one, which, you know, numbers picked up. And so for me... None of that is going to happen. <laughs> that's true. Um, so work like that um, is only meaningful to me over time, like after all the relationships have been built. And um, I don't do that sort of stuff except for just a very small... I said that sort of, that sort of stuff, this sort of stuff, um, except for like very small group of people who know me for have known me for years and years and years so that's my answer to your question so um then why did you do a podcast with me can you repeat the question <laughs> do you buy time with that joe does uh, yeah, yeah yeah so you're buying time so so a 
podcast is a very vulnerable thing. Mm-hmm. It's particularly vulnerable for us six. Yep. Um, we had gone a half a year in the cohort, and so I felt like I belonged to this by that point. In January, I might have said no. I only feel like it's meaningful over time, but I also think that I know a lot about people and people don't know a lot about me. Do the nines want to talk on this one? And as you do, I just want to say that I think all three of you have yourselves situated in a position on the Enneagram where you know a lot about people and they don't know a lot about you. Yeah, that's one thing that I thought of too. Um, but I definitely usually know, ask more questions about other people versus give information. Um, I would say if it's talking about group work kind of in two different ways, though, if we're talking about group, like project work, like work work sort of things, I don't, I don't like being a part of groups like that because I'm impatient with like group thought and planning together and making ideas. I just want to get things done, and it moves too slowly. And I also really like group work like this sort of work um, because I like intimacy and I like connection and um, you can find that in this kind of work. I mean, I, I think when I joined the cohort last year <clears throat> with you, Suzanne, um, I, I, was, uh, I was wanting a lot of information. I wanted to learn about the Enneagram, right? Um, and I felt like I needed to learn more. I wanted to learn more, but after a couple of sessions being being there, um, I began to sense that, or I mean, I was told by many of my friends in the cohort that like I um, I had something to bring to the table, and that I needed to bring it to the table. Otherwise, um, they were going to be missing on something. And, and I think I began to understand the importance of, the, of doing that work for myself because it benefits other people, um, because it benefited my friends in that group. Um, and, and, that's, and so it's something that I, I think I could have been very happy to just come to a series of lectures and listened, but what really transformed me was actually bringing myself so uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about groups a little bit, and this is in part preparation for tomorrow, is that I, I think relationships are really falling on hard times. And I'm um, very concerned about our inability to relate to one another looking at each other instead of looking at a screen. I'm very concerned about our inability to be in groups or in conversation with people who we don't agree with and who don't think like we think and who don't see the way we see. And so one of the values of the Enneagram is that there are nine ways of seeing and you can't change that. And these three couples of people are as different from one another as we could ultimately imagine. Like the way you see the world is absolutely so different. But once you have permission to see the world different from everybody else, which the Enneagram gives you, then you can talk about things. And we're in a time when we're trying to get everybody to think the same way we think. 
and we're mad at people who don't think the same way we think, and they're stupid and dumb and don't get it, and and, 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 and. And so I think that the Enneagram set the table for all of the things that happen collectively and individually that you all are referring to. And without it, I just don't think you, I don't think anybody of these six would have joined an organization or a program that lasts a year where they're going to do group work. They just would say, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. Now, the sixes would be more likely than the other two, but the group work would have to be purposeful group work, not necessarily reflective group work. And so I, th I think we're, we're not going to get back to understanding difference unless we're willing to be at the table with people who are different than we are without judging it. And the Enneagram gives you a place to stand where you don't have to judge it. Can I say something about group work? This has helped me think through thinking. One of the difficult things to be vulnerable in groups as a six, I don't know if this is true for you, is the things people most admire about me on the surface, once you're vulnerable, they see, oh, this is more messed up than I thought, <laughs> thought it was. Like, that thing is, that thinking thing isn't necessarily all that it's cracked up to be. It's like your safety net's gone. Yeah. All right, the next question, prepared question, is, as you can tell, there's a male and female of each number. Do you think there's a difference both in your behavior because of your gender and the world's perception of you? Are you going to start with the nines this time? Sure to start with the threes a lot. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's joking, so I'll go ahead. That was a good, good way to get out of it. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I see much of a difference between male and female nines from my perspective, at least as a nine. And I don't, I don't, I don't even, it doesn't cross my mind what other people think about me or us as nine. So I, I just, I haven't really. Yeah, the answer as, can be no. Or, I mean, it's in, yeah. Well, I think that's um, kind of speaks of a nine. Like, I, we don't, we don't think of other, we don't think necessarily that other people would think of us. Like, that wouldn't cross my mind. I, yeah, I'm, I think I'm. I think I agree with you, Jill. Uh, the only the only thing I guess I would say is, um, as a uh, doing repressed person, as a withdrawing number, um, often in our culture, at least, it, uh, men are in, encouraged to be leaders and to be out in front. And uh, I'm married to a seven who is an aggressive number, <laughs> uh, and there are times where it's been really important for us uh, not to follow kind of cult, cult, our cultural uh, perceptions of the way marriage ought to look, um, where it's been important for me to learn how to let her lead and for her to learn how to lead in the context of our marriage. Um, not in all ways, but we that's something we have to negotiate on a regular basis. Yeah. I don't think so. I. <laughs> That'll work. Yeah. I mean, let me overthink about it and then I'll get back to you. Well, I can't say how a female feels, but I am very mindful of the power and privilege and, and voice I have in society as a white, 
cisgender, straight, Christian male. And I'm very mindful of the place that anywhere I go, it's expected that I'll have something to say. It's acceptable that I have something to say. I can talk freely and not be second-guessed for who I am and what I have to offer. And I'm also aware that we live in a society where women's voices are still absurdly marginalized. And I have to check myself and not let myself be the aggressive person. If I'm the person of privilege and power in the room, I have to make myself shut up. If I'm in a room where my colleagues and friends or people who's, who don't feel like they can speak, then I'll try to use my voice for good. But that, but that takes a lot of work for me to shut up. And here's an example of me not doing it. I spoke before you. <laughs> I, think, uh, I, I think no is the answer to your question. Um, I, don't, I don't feel like as a female three... Um, the the inherent threeness of me is antithetical to femininity in the world, right? In the way that we would talk about that as female eights have a hard time making their way in the world. I think um, as an aggressive number, though, I think I'm much more prone to speak up, and I don't know that I do it particularly well yet. Often it's it's snarky speaking up now when I'm aware that just as a woman I'm being marginalized in some way or the, you know, like it's just assumed that I'm going to unload the dishwasher because I'm the wife. Like I'm, it irritates me and I notice it and I, I think am much more willing to say it than maybe a six or a nine is because my aggressiveness lets me kind of, I'm much quicker to mouth off and then apologize for it later or something like that. But I think that's probably the only difference. I don't think my threeness is, I think it's fine. Do you think that because threes are so relational, that that's the big difference between female threes and female eights in relation to the world? I actually don't think it's because threes are so relational, but I do think it's because threes take in information with feelings. She said that a certain way, didn't she? Well, I meant... So relational. So, but I do think it's because she, she, Laura, and female threes have access to feelings. H just don't. So they don't have any feelings, of male and female, and we like it in men, and we don't like it in women. And the more you press a female eight to share a feeling, the more you're going to be stonewalled. It's just not going to happen. So I, I think that we have to talk about for a minute the fact that what's happening is when you take in information, you have equal access to feelings with me. And then things change. Because immediately after you've assessed what's happening based on feelings, you set feelings aside. And then from that point moving forward, you use doing and thinking and thinking and doing. And that's a completely different thing than a female eight taking in information with doing, so they start doing with no feelings, and then they think about what they've done, and then they do something about what they think about, about what they've done, and feelings don't ever come into play. And it's hard to get in that, and it's not hard to get into feelings with you. 
And sevens just reframe it. Female sevens are just like you. They just reframe feelings that make them uncomfortable. And so they choose relationship feelings to be a part of the conversation or not. All right, and then one more question, and then we're going to get to y'all's questions. So get them ready, and we'll come out with the old wireless. All right, so in this discussion that we've had, there have been several different examples where when the circumstances presented themselves, like the perfect storm, that's when the repressed side came up. You know, when this lines up, when it's time to do this, then that happens. Uh, the sixes, y'all talked about thinking it was, it was time to think it had to be productive then. What do y'all do so that when the moments come that you do need to do, you do need to think, you do need to feel that you're ready for that and it's not repressed? One of the things that I think I found to be most helpful, and this was certainly a part of our cohort program as well, was um, uh, basically contemplative practice. Uh, the, um, there's no way for me uh, automatically uh, just to, <clears throat> to, to, uh, to do in a, in a way that is present and, and mindful. Um, and so I have to kind of build into my day. So earlier I talked about I'm waking, waking up, get the kids ready. I, it's, it's a part of my practice as I make my kids sandwiches as, that I pray for them. Um, and so that brings me into uh, this work that I'm doing and seeing this work as actually meaningful. I'm giving my children the food that they need and I'm taking care of them and I'm thanking God for um, the life that, that he's given to them. <clears throat> and so that's, I think, one way that is really important for me to um, build in these practices that help doing um, uh, be meaningful and mindful for myself. I just want to throw in, so when I make my kids' sandwiches, that's when I bring up feelings. I, leave, I make a note and leave them a note in their lunchbox about how proud of them I am and I love them, and I do that then with sandwiches. So that's cool. And I never thought of it, though, as a practice until you just talked yeah. about that. Man, y'all are way out doing me. When I had to make sandwiches, I thought, my God, when am I going to get to I start, I started making. <laughs> I started making my own lunch when I was like three and a half. So and why not? It's time for school. Hope you had breakfast. Hope, hope you made a lunch. You're going to be hungry. Hey, don't get carried away. Jill? Sure. Um, I'd say as far as like just those things that I want to avoid doing um, that may not be like long-term goal-oriented sort of things. It's just things that are need to be done. Um, but I want to avoid and do that by doing a lot of other things. Um, I have to stop and be very mindful about, like, I do like lists, and I do have to pay attention to what is really the priority. And when I look at it and I think about it, I can, of course, figure out and pinpoint what the priorities are. But it takes that intentionality versus just doing what I want to do first and second and third, and then, you know, it comes to the end of the day and I haven't done what was really the priority of the day. So really stopping and taking some time to think and be thoughtful about what, how, do, what, how do I need to organize my day? Um, that's, that's very helpful for just those things that I want to avoid. For more long-term planning and things that are important to me, 
Um, that is, that takes intentionality also in a different way of I have to connect more with what I think and what I feel. So for me, I have to journal. I can't verbally process that. I have to do it in a way that I'm processing it on my own and I can't just think about it. I have to write it down in order to really process my thoughts and process, get to what I feel about things so that I can then move towards whatever it is that I want um, or have goals for. The other thing I, I just want to say to you two and to all the nines is I, you got to have some sense that your presence matters and that, we, and that what you do matters and that when you show up matters and that how you make the sandwiches matters. Like you are so dismissive of your own value that it, it's like, what difference does it make if I speak up? What difference does it make if I do this? What, and I think as long as you live with feeling like you can't assert yourself. So the lost childhood message for um, nines is your presence matters. And uh, the unconscious message is it's not okay to assert yourself. So when you bring those two messages with you out of childhood... And you're living with, well, I can't really say what I think here because that could cause conflict. And what I think doesn't matter anyway. And then all of a sudden you reach adulthood and we expect you to do and believe you matter. That's a whole journey of its own. So. One of the things we haven't talked about as sixes is the whole worst case scenario thinking thing. And that's kind of part of the um, unproductive thinking. So... Um, one practice I have very recently in the last few weeks um, started doing once I get down that rabbit hole um, is to do some contemplative like breathing. And I ask myself this one question, uh, what here do I actually know? Um, not, you know, not what have I conjectured that could happen. Like w what is the actual information that is solid information that I have that I know to be true? So for me, that helps kind of be a filter for all of the other frenzied thinking. I feel like my examples are very less holy. Than I made him start making his lunch when he was three. You try to top that. This end of the line is okay, not going to talk okay. about centering prayer. <laughs> I was say, you might actually like this one. Um, I think as a six, one of the most helpful things that I've done recently um, because I'm not naturally reflective. I don't, I don't usually stop long enough in my thinking to be reflective. Um, but one of the things that I did recently was I updated my resume. And it made me feel really um, not just good about myself, but it made me remember and reflect on all of the things that I've been doing and thinking about the last seven years. Um, and then the second thing I would say is um, recently had a conversation with Chad. I could not get it out of my mind because both of our, the way that our house is structured is we're on the, the, the floor level and both of my children are upstairs. And I could not get it out of my mind of what would I do if there's a fire? <laughs> I mean, just worst case, like what would we do? What is our, what is our plan going to be? And I, every night when I went to bed, I just continued to think about that. And so I just... I asked Chad, I said, I know this is so ridiculous. I said, but will you just walk it out with me? 
Like, what, what is our plan going to be if there's ever a fire in our house, and what are we going to do? And we just kind of walked it out. Will it ever happen? Maybe not, but at least in my mind, in my heart, I know that I know what to do, and I know that Chad knows what to do, and we, we've got a plan. So sometimes I have to, even if it's not going to happen, I have to walk it out all the way in order for my anxiety, in, in order for me to feel kind of secure in that. All right, I'm going to teach for just a second about other numbers in, in relationship to this. So I am uh, thinking repressed, not and not and dominant, just repressed. And I'm feeling dominant, and I really care about all these people. So when I hear Heather say, I've been updating my resume, then I thought, oh, God, they're going to leave Dallas. What will I do without her? I leaned forward like to see if I could see if you're sending it to anybody. (laughs) Right? That's what you do when you're feeling dominant and relational and thinking repressed. Like that's where your head goes. And that's problematic. Right? So don't, we chose the 369 because they're thinking dominant or they're dominant and repressed. But you got the same nonsense going on and you don't have a safety valve like I never think. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll say as a feeling dominant person, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so fun. Heather's going to get a new job. And on a side note, she should not be talking about this on a podcast, (laughs) which is what I thought. She's not. She was just updating it. She's much smarter than that. But people update their resumes, don't they? Yes, and I love the idea. As a feeling repressed person, all I heard was, that can be my spiritual practice, updating my resume. have a new job to offer you. I've already thought of where I think you should go to work. This is great. I've assumed that if I talk about updating my resume, that I'm going to go on Monday and be fired. (laughs) If they hear about that on the podcast. (laughs) Did you all have to do, what if it floods? What if a tornado comes? Like, I'd be like, are we going to do this for everything? Well, she asked you tonight. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. I did it until What does the foundation give? What are going to do if there's a flood? I don't know. A fire just feel, because of the structure of the house, it just, I don't know, it felt more. I also, I will also say that um, I worked with an apartment complex recently in Dallas that had a fire. And, um, and so after that, I... I asked Chad, I was like, do our smoke detectors work? Do we have any fire extinguishers? Do we have a fire ladder? Right? And I bought all of those things. And we have a firebox that we keep our important documents in because I saw how devastating it was to those families' lives. Big and fire I, axe? No axe. <laughs> and if you're going to do it, have some fun with it. Are we talking about bringing up the repressed? Is that... Yeah, what, so what do we do? Not for seven, so just for y'all. Yeah, clearly. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, think I'm, I think I'm paying attention to two things right now when I'm working on bringing up feeling. Um, and, and part of that is, this is really new, within the last week or two or you know, like a month, it was in the past. Um, like I think I'm trying to say to people that I love, that hurt my feelings. And that is a really scary thing. It's really big. Um, and I've probably done it three or four times now, and I'm super proud of myself. And it's all, it always, so far, it's taking me a couple of days. You know, it's like I can't say in real time, oh, that really hurt my feelings. But often I think you're such a jerk, 
And then I realized what really is happening is that hurt my feelings. And then to honor that relationship and say like that, that thing hurt my feelings and I'd like to talk about that experience. And that's really scary, but it's been really helpful. Um, and I think I, I hear Suzanne talk a lot when you talk about threes, how uh, three set feelings aside because they're so inefficient. And so maybe the past six months or a year, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how much I value efficiency and and recognizing how many other ways of seeing the world do not value efficiency the way that I do is astonishing. It is astonishing how inefficient the world is and how (laughs) irritating it is to me and how quickly I am, how quickly I put a value judgment on that. Like, oh, you are... I can't even say the things out loud that I think about people that aren't, they're not doing bad things. It's just not the most efficient way to do it. And I don't understand why you would push a lawnmower if you can ride on a lawnmower. Like you could have mowed so many more lawns, you could have made a lot more money. So either you'd have more money now or you could add more vacation days. Like there's just a lot of opportunities that you chose thinking instead. And that's a good valid choice. And it's just a different choice than I would have made. And so I'm trying to name Uh, When I'm irritated at things, I'm trying to name what irritates me. And it's 98 or 99% of the time, it's inefficiency. And so I'm trying to, when I can't say out loud, I just lost four seconds on that inefficiency. Like, who who cares? It's four seconds. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, the TSA line at my airport was closed this morning. Well, I don't understand. Like, I have paid for TSA. You have created a TSA line. And they're like, yeah, it's closed today. It's so, so everybody's in the same line. I take my laptop out of the bag. It was ridiculous. And I probably lost a, a minute, 90 seconds on it. Like, and, and so I think to recognize that, that, that a need for inefficiency keeps me from accessing feelings It's like I'm trying to work backwards by saying then, then maybe efficiency isn't the top value in my life. Maybe other things could be important too. I haven't even said it yet. I'm still at the maybe stage. Maybe inefficiency. (laughs) So now what I think is you are not a three. That's what I think when I encounter inefficient people. There's you are not a three. There's no way you're a three. And you are one of the other numbers, and that is a good thing. (laughs) Wow, amen. That could be a shirt. There are threes and the rest of you. (laughs) Also centering prayer. (laughs) (laughs) So I I love what Suzanne and Joe do with creating new spiritual practices as as a regular way of life. And so one that I've created is after reading a book by Jamar Tisby called The Color of Compromise. Uh, It's about the role of race and racism in the church. And he says there's a difference between the white guilt that we carry around and godly grief for the racism that exists in our society. And he says that white people have to learn to feel black people's pain. So I'm asking the people I work with, or people of color, what can I learn about your pain? All right, we're going to go to the crowd now. Who wants this? So, um, you guys can be around and stand up. Um, you guys haven't talked at all about within the triads, um, anger, fear, and shame. And I'm curious, is there any connection with 
being called on to use your repressed center that like elicits anger, fear, and shame for each of the groups. So nines are repressed doing when they're called on to do. Does that elicit anger? And the same thing for the threes and sixes and thinking and feeling. Wow, that's a really good question. I'll be so interested in listening to see how they answer. That's a good, good question. I'll, I'll start with that. I mean, that example, I can just say yes. Um, if I'm pushed to do something that I don't want to do, I'd first say it irritates me, but it really is making me angry. Um, and I would also say that that... I just want to add, though, that it expresses itself as passive-aggressive anger. Yes. So they get angry, but it's passive-aggressive anger, which means they are unendingly stubborn. And I would say, kind of maybe the flip side, I was thinking your question was going to be about addressing the anger. I would say that in, in a healthy way, addressing my anger versus doing it in a passive-aggressive way, I've really been trying to be intentional about that, and that requires... Um, productive doing by stopping and actually having a conversation with the somebody that I need to have a conversation with instead of being passive aggressive about it um, to address the anger um, that I feel or the irritability. I, I'm pretty much afraid every time I start to talk. Like you probably don't sense that because I talk a lot. But um, and to the to the question, um, yes, there's. Um, when I think people are going to know that this stuff going on, like I said earlier, is uh, is not good stuff all the time, um, yeah, there's a lot of fear there. I was, I was just thinking, you know, Brett and I are good acquaintances, we're friends, um, but we don't hang out a lot. Um, when I found out I, he was riding with me, I was actually afraid of what I would talk about. <laughs> Um, and so I don't, it's like we're always thinking about what we're going to have to talk about. And so when that thing comes up, um, uh, all of the, uh, all of the stuff that we've practiced no longer has a chance to get, get out. And so all that to say, yes. I'm often aware of how unaware I am of my sense of shame, but, but where, I do experience it is around how clumsy I am with feelings. The, the places where I have not connected with my children at a feeling level over the years is a place where I feel a sense of shame. This is more of a broader Enneagram question. I'm curious to know how each of you were, we, before you ever started the Enneagram, how each of you were presented the Enneagram and how you became interested and like willing to participate in Enneagram work. I'm sure a lot of us in this room have people we would like, you need this in your life, and they may be rejecting it or hesitant, especially nines maybe. Um, and I'm just curious to know how that was presented to you and how you finally said yes. I went through a typing workshop at a church that I was serving, uh, a one-on-one -on -one typing thing uh, where I told my life story and then was told that I was a two. And so I read about 
obtuseness and thought, that's nice, and then thought the Enneagram's real dumb uh, <laughs> because it didn't have anything to do, I mean, it didn't have anything to do with my life. And so um, I think that, that there's a chance that that could be the story for many people who are told that they are a type or accidentally mistype themselves or take a quiz that mistypes them and then you know, if, if you're learning about yourself, but it's not really you, it's not that helpful. And then I heard Suzanne teach. And I thought, you know, I think she might have, I think she might have something here. I think I, um, uh, I kind of heard it in the background around Waco enough to where it's not like it is now where people are talking about it all the time. I would have been that reject, reject if, if I had had, if, if I now had told me about the Enneagram then. Um, I needed it to be something kind of on the surface, and I, I, I guess I needed to wade into it a little bit more than go to a weekend like this. I had a trusted, uh, my spiritual director who kept bringing Suzanne down to Waco, and um, he he's a nine as well, and he said, I think you should uh, watch these DVDs. I think I had missed when you had come, and they had the Know Your Number DVDs, and so I watched them, and that's kind of, so I think for me it was having a trust, someone who really did know me and who was invested in my own spiritual journey that kind of encouraged that. I'll, I'll say something too, just because it's a little different than maybe everyone else. Um, I, I had friends that knew the Enneagram, and so I was introduced to it that way, but I would say when I, when I came to a class and learned it, I was in a place in my life where everything just kind of fell apart and things weren't working and it explained so much to me of my life and how I had done life or I would say how life had kind of been done to me in a way um, that I just, you know, lived in the shell of life. And so it, uh, it, I just saw all the opportunity to expand on that. So I was just in a place in life and I think that's, um, that was that was a good thing. I've watched my husband as a one resist the Enneagram for over 10 years um, until three months ago. And he has devoured every single podcast. So we had a, a baby, I've already said this, but you know, you spend a lot of time like, shh, 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 right? So he wears his earbuds. He would wear his, and it's been driving me crazy. We've talked about it. He has his earbuds in the all day, and all he's doing is listening to Enneagram podcasts. And now he has read at least like seven or eight books on the Enneagram. And so for some people, they just don't want it to be forced on them. It has to be something that they recognize the value of for themselves, and they'll get there. We got time for another question or two. And then yeah, I was just thinking of... Um, <coughs> because y'all talked about the different numbers if you had to be at a table and do group work. I was thinking if you had to be alone on a desert island with just one other number, what would it be? Well, I'll answer that one first. Because I, I was immediately going to say <laughs> Joe Stabile. Like, I want to be everywhere with Joe Stabile. Constantly, actually. And we've been married a long time. But then I thought, sorry, baby. Then I thought, Hmm. Desert Island? <laughs> I might want somebody who is going to, like, do a lot of stuff. <laughs> 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 you 
you know, like like build shelter and <laughs> this kill is bringing up repressed thinking right here. <laughs> Feeling being pushed down, thinking coming up. It's got to be real drastic circumstances. So, but anyway. My wife's an eight. I'm taking her. Yeah. <laughs> I want another six so we can look at each other and say we knew it. <laughs> And the other person would be like, yep. And here's uh, everything we need in our bag. (laughs) Suckers. That, thank you. We all need that. Thank you all so much. uh, Our guests, thank you. We'll all clap for them now. The panel. Uh, they are going to be around here now. To You can go up to them, ask them questions, whatever. Uh, the author, Suzanne Seville, thank you. Clap for her now. Thank you, Mother. Uh,